We said last week, and we'll say again this week, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, can be framed within discussion about God's design for us as human beings, uh, our sin, and ultimately God's rescue plan from our sin. Today we're going to focus on that second aspect, particularly our sin and, and, and what it is that is wrong with the world uh, that we see, uh, wrong with the world as we see it today. Today we'll see from Romans chapter 1 that our sin, according to Scripture, is the chief problem that mankind faces. Our sin, our rebellion against God, is the source of all evil and dysfunction in this life. That's a key part of the gospel story, the gospel narrative, that that mankind has sinned. And in our sin, we've separated ourselves from God. As a result of what we'll see in God's Word from Romans chapter 1 this morning, I hope that that we as a, a church, as we as a body of believers, would understand that sin, that rebellion against God, really is the primary answer to the question of evil in the world. The question of, as some have framed it, theodicy. Why, why is there evil in the world if God exists? And I would hope that we would begin to consider how to point non-believers to the reality of sin and consistency of the Bible's description of sin as mankind's greatest problem. Let us, if you will, turn our attention to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and see what God's Word uh, says to us there. Uh, The text will be on the screen behind me. You can follow along in uh, your copy of God's Word as well. Would you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word together? The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this to the church in Rome. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, because of this, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And God give us grace to see the truth of his word this morning. You be seated. 
Last week we looked uh, particularly at God's design for creation. So God as creator, as morally perfect, uh, uh, as uh, holy, created the world and everything in it by his spoken word. He fashioned, he made man and woman out of the dust of the ground to be the bearers of his image that they might uh, steward the creation, manage the world and the cosmos that God has created, that they might be holy even as God is holy, pursuing uh, moral right righteousness, that they might worship God by both giving him glory and declaring his glory into the world, and that they might love both God and others as those who have been made to bear the image of God in the world. Last week, we looked at Genesis 1 to answer the two questions. How did we get here? And we know that the, the biblical answer is by God's spoken word, by his creative act. And the second question is, uh, what are we here for? And that is to be God's image bearers, to reflect his glory and his character into creation. But this week, as we come to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, and think about gospel conversations, I want us to ask another question that, that I think most people uh, often ask, or ask at least at some point in their lives. We ask, how do we get here? What are we here for? But we also ask the question that Romans uh, chapter 1, I think, is trying to answer for us, and that is this, why are things the way they are? If we know how we got here, we know what we're here for, Why is the world not how it seems that it ought to be? In fact, more specifically, people tend to ask not not so much the question, why are things the way they are, but maybe why are things as bad as as they are? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much suffering in so many places? When this question comes up in conversation or on the news or or even when suffering hits your own life personally— We ought to recognize that the only reason we can say that a certain thing is evil or that a certain situation uh, results in suffering is because we have some knowledge of what is ideal, of what ought to be. The only reason we can say things are not right is because we have some sort of internal inherent knowledge that things are wrong. When the ideal, when, when God's design is transgressed, when righteousness is replaced by evil, we know in our souls as those who have been created in the image of God, that things are not the way they ought to be. Our very design by God, though it's broken by our sin, still begs our consciences to see that something is off, that things are, 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 not, uh, are not right. Paul, here in his letter to the church in Rome, as he begins his defense of the gospel of Jesus throughout the course of this letter, he gives a clear and biblically consistent explanation as to why suffering, evil, pain, and even perversion exist. And toward that end, he gives us one chief reason that all of this seems to be broken. He gives us one chief reason for the, all of the problems that we see in the world. And with that one reason, three subsequent symptoms. Let us look first at the reason Paul gives for suffering in the world, for, why, for the reason why things are the way they are. The reason he gives in verses 18 through 23 is rebellion. Things are the way they are because of mankind's rebellion. The rebellion that Paul describes here in these verses is a rebellion specifically against the knowledge of God. In fact, he says that the very wrath of God is being revealed to humanity against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, he says in verse 18. 
The wrath of God is not a simple or easy thing to talk about. You, if you're a visitor this morning, you may be disappointed that I'm preaching about the wrath of God this morning. I'm not sorry about it. God's word speaks about it, so we're, gonna, we're going to address it. But oftentimes the wrath of God is difficult to talk about because we think of God's wrath in, in, in a similar way that we think about his other qualities, his other perfections, his other characteristics, and we try to apply human terms or, or a human understanding to those aspects of God. So when we talk about the wrath of God, it becomes difficult because we often equate God's wrath with our own human expressions of anger and rage. But as one scholar puts it, God's wrath is, very plainly, his divine displeasure with sin. God's wrath is his divine displeasure with sin. But because it is God's wrath, and because as we saw last week, even from Genesis 1, that God is morally perfect, always righteous, always just, his wrath has none of the violent rage nor any of the injustice or rashness that human beings express in our wrath. His wrath is pure, his wrath is just, his wrath is right and good, and it is always rightly directed. We need to understand that about who God is and about his wrath. Now, this wrath, Paul says, God pours out because, as verse 18 tells us, mankind has, uh, to quote Paul, suppressed the truth. They have hidden the truth. They have recognized and then put away from plain sight that which is true. Friend, have you ever been the victim of someone who has intentionally and maliciously tried to hide the truth and sell a lie in its place? That's rather displeasing, I would say. may even invoke our own wrath toward that person for being lied to. But dear friends, this is exactly what Paul says every man and woman has done with the truth and knowledge of God that is available to each of us in creation. Paul notes that God's invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly observable in the universe that God has created. You don't have to look very far to the Sandia Mountains on our horizon to the east or even the majestic New Mexico sunsets in the west at the end uh, of each day. You go around the world and see the many of the natural wonders that exist, the tides of the oceans, the, uh, just the, the cycle of the moon around the earth. We can look out into the cosmos and see the glory of God and that there is a majestic creator, a powerful creator. But Paul says all of us have seen that. We've known that there is a God, must be a God, and have denied it all the same. One scholar describes this natural knowledge of God's existence this way. He says, this is not a deliberate, rational process, but rather it's like when one is thrown into a den of lions, there's an immediate awareness that this is a dangerous situation from which one must escape. In a similar way, when one is thrown into the created world, one becomes aware of his or her creaturely limitation and becomes aware of a vague sense of that which is infinite. The human mind perceives that whatever lies beyond must be the creator who alone should be worshipped. And so when Paul goes on in verse 21 to say that although they knew God, he is referring to this innate and natural recognition of a creator that lies outside of the created world, that we can see all that has been created and assume from that uh, uh, to, to come to the conclusion from what we see that someone must have created it. Interestingly enough, this is not something that we have to teach children. Right? Very often we have to teach children that there is not a God 
Uh, but in most uh, cultures around the world, uh, even amongst uh, the, the, uh, different uh, backgrounds and religious uh, sort of affiliations and, and assumptions, there is around the world uh, this sort of longing for God or recognition that something beyond us exists. But Paul also says that rather than seeking to know this creator, that all human beings, from Adam and Eve on down to you and I today, all human beings have suppressed this truth. Our minds, our hearts, our souls have said there is a God. He is, he is divinely powerful. He is infinite in his existence. Our souls have told us that, and we have heard that truth, and we have suppressed it. We've bottled it away. We've, we've stuck it in the dark corners and recesses of our hearts and minds to try not to bring it out into the light again because we know, we know that if that is true, then we are responsible to someone. That if that is true, that someone that is not us deserves worship and praise and glory. Claiming to have a degree of wisdom and knowledge about the universe, mankind has taken the glory that is due to the Creator and rebelliously given it to the images of created things. We have here in Paul's letter a harsh word against idolatry. Specifically, that idolatry is the height of spiritual stupidity and foolishness. Idolatry is the spiritual equivalent of presenting a Super Bowl trophy to a Tom Brady bobblehead while the man himself remains confined to the locker room deflating footballs. I, only, only spiritually, listen, only spiritually the effects of idolatry are far worse. Because in idolatry, we take all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the worship that is due to God. And as his image bearers, we give it to rocks and sticks that are sculpted in the likeness of human beings that we ignorantly call gods. In idolatry, we take that Tom Brady bobblehead with Super Bowl trophy in hand and we trust it to lead next year's team to victory. This sort of sinful rebellion against the truth of God to follow our own intuitions about the universe is not only played out with sculpted images of so-called gods, but it also plays itself out in our, idolatry, our, our ideologies excuse me, about creation as well. Some may say, well, I, I'm not so unsophisticated. I'm not so primitive as to believe, that, uh, to believe all, all the superstition of dolls and images of gods. I, I, I'm a follower of science. I believe only in that which we can give rational explanation for. I'm, I'm not a superstitious person. But even here, friends, is a hidden idolatry. This kind of scientific knowledge, which, uh, by the way, oftentimes is very good and helpful and beneficial, okay? Uh, when our kids get ear infections, they, they take amoxicillin, all right? We, we don't just trust them. You know, we take them to the doctor, and we trust the, some of the moder- uh, marvels of modern science to help to make them well. You know, when those among us have cancer, we, and their doctors recommend chemotherapy, we encourage them to follow the advice of their, do- their doctor. So I'm not saying science is bad, but when science becomes the be-all and the end-all, there is a kind of idolatry there. This kind of scientific knowledge is ultimately based on the presumption that all knowledge can be tamed autonomously, that we don't need anyone or anything other than ourselves to explain the, the whole of existence. We can figure it out on our own. Thank you very much. Now, let me give you another example of idolatry that will cut a little bit deeper for you, Christian. For even we who are in the church are not immune from suppressing the truth of God to our own advantage and to suit our own arrogance. 
There is a flavor of Christian idolatry that says the Bible is a good book. Yes, it's even God's word. The Bible tells me how to be saved from sin by believing Jesus is the Son of God, by asking him into my heart, by repenting of my sins. The Bible tells me... uh, that all of these things are true, but there are some parts of Scripture that we know are really out of date and primitive and shouldn't be applied to our modern day. We know better today, say some Christians, and as a society we've come so much farther in our own ethics, our own morality, that, that we just know that many of the New Testament commands for Christian living, they just aren't reasonable or even appropriate for a 21st century believer. Friends, I'm not just talking about God's instructions on issues of sexuality and gender, with which, with which most Orthodox Christians today still continue to, um, uh, to push back against in culture. But I'm talking about things like, how does the church uh, approach issues of church leadership? How do we practice baptism in the Lord's Supper? Oftentimes, we as churches, uh, and even as Christians, we give more credence to Christian cultural elites when it comes to structuring the ministries of our churches and and even the layout of our buildings than we do to the very Word of God itself. All too often, we're content to follow popular, uh, prominent preachers rather than the Word of God. And and where the Word of prominent, popular preachers or or particular programs or the wisdom of of the corporate world, wherever those things conflict with what the Word of God says, uh, we often don't want to defer to the Word of God because we've done things this way for so long and see how well it works that we relegate to the dark corners of our hearts the, and even the dark corners of our churches and ministries what the truth of God's Word says. Christian, we are prone to idolatry as well. The Bible is inspired by God. It's inerrant and infallible, we say. But often we need a more enlightened perspective when it comes to other issues. That's the nature of the sort of Christian idolatry that even plagues the hearts of, of believers in churches, not just in the West, but around the world. So friends, rebellion against God, whether it be against the knowledge of God as a whole or against the sufficiency even of God's word for all that we need for salvation and godly living, rebellion is the core of every problem on earth, the Apostle Paul says. It was the exchange of truth for a lie that started the whole pattern of sin in the Garden of Eden. You'll recall Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. There where the serpent asked Eve to question the goodness and truth of what God had said, saying, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin. Rebellion, suppression of the truth of God incurs. It brings on the holy and just displeasure of God upon sinners, of which all of us are. Romans chapter three twenty three says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So don't read Romans 1, 18 through 23, Christian, and think somehow you are excluded from, from, the, from the blame, from the responsibility for the sin that is described here. You are 
You are, I am, the person that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 1. Rebelling against the truth of God is at the root of all sin. The Bible tells us this. But the result of God's wrath against rebels to the truth is not always what we think or might presume it to be. The reason that things are the way they are, that there's so much pain and evil and suffering in the world, is because of mankind's rebellion against the truth of God to follow the desires of their own heart, to worship gods that that have no power in them, and the result is uh, the wrath of God upon them. Now, the results have several different sort of symptoms that we see here that Paul describes. The results of this rebellion in what follows in the remainder of our passage shows to be an explanation of the wrath of God of God as it comes on sinners. And it might surprise you, friend, what we find there. For verses 24 through 32 tell us that the variety of sinful actions, pain, suffering, evil works that we see in the world today are not the cause of God's wrath. They are not specifically the things that bring about God's wrath, but rather they are the result of God's wrath. In verses 24, 26 and 28, right there at the beginning of each of those verses, we read that because of their rebellion, because of mankind's exchange of the truth of God for a lie, that, to quote Paul, God gave them up to all manner of debased and sinful actions. And he outlines three different sorts of them here in these verses. So, dear friends, see that God's wrath is found not so much in his active punishment for sin, according to Paul, but rather in his giving sinners over to the pain and destruction that they have sought on their own. God's wrath does not so commonly come as a lightning bolt from heaven, but as it does from God's refraining from intervening in in the will and the desire and the direction of sinful people going the way that they have decided they want to go. God's wrath is shown in his giving us up to various forms of continued sin. The first one that we see in verses uh, 24 and 25 is self-deception. God gives gives sinners up to uh, self-deception. These two verses, 24 and 25, are fairly plain. There we read that because mankind has rebelled against truth, the truth of God, God has said effectively to human beings, if lies are what you want, then lies are what you may follow. I won't force you to follow me. If you want lies, if you want untruth, follow them. In our rebellious hearts, Scripture tells us we've exchanged the truth of God's worthiness and His glory, and we have given it to created things. And God has given us freely over to our idolatry. We have exchanged the truth of God's design for our hearts to be passionate for His glory and to be pleased in Him and by Him. We've exchanged that for the lie that we can and should seek our own pleasure first. And God has given us over to pleasing ourselves according to our own physical and sexual passions. God says, if you think there's fulfillment in that, even though I've told you otherwise and you know otherwise, go for it. If that's what you want, follow that. If that is what you desire to worship, worship that and bring with it all of its consequences. Friends, this this is the really scary thing about God's wrath. That it is not so much a divine intervention in response to our sin, but rather that it is a divine silence and non-intervention to allow us to go on sinning as we have already chosen. God gives sinners over in his wrath to their own self-deception. He also, in verses 26 and 27, gives people over to the perversion of the good. 
Now, this is not to say that God approves of self-deception, nor that God approves of, of perverting that which is good, but he allows, in his, in his, as is his divine right to do so, his human beings created in his image to reflect his glory, to go after other things if they so desire to go after other things. So here in verses 26 and 27, we see that he, because we've exchanged knowledge of God for a lie, gives us over to perversion of that which is good. We find in the first couple of chapters of Genesis that there that God makes man and woman as a perfect complement for each other. That they're fit for being fruitful and multiplying through childbearing. We looked at this last week. We saw there that we are created as sexual beings with sexual impulses to be exercised in the loving and committed lifelong bond of covenant marriage between one man and one woman, all for the glory of God. But as Romans 1, 26 and 27 demonstrates... Rebellion against the truth of God has extended even to the truth of what is sexually good and what is sexually appropriate. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie, Paul says, sinners have been the recipients of God's wrath, and he hands them over to all sorts of sexual perversion. Women and men both, Paul says, have exchanged the natural order of marriage and sex for an unnatural one that is exercised between one woman and another and one man and another. Church, it is not here my intent this morning to give a scathing condemnation of the LGBTQ movement, nor of the perils of the present sexual and moral revolution ongoing in our society. Rather, it's my hope that as we see, as we read this here in in God's word to us through Paul, it's my hope that we as Christians would be moved by Scripture not to see as those, those who are part of the LGBTQ movement or culture, not to see them as our, as our enemies, not to see them as those who are condemned by God, but rather to see that because those movements are based on a lie about where sex comes from and what God, and what God has designed sex for and for the manner in which it is most truly fulfilling, that we would see that those movement, movements can never fulfill their promises that the LGBTQ movement cannot make good on its word to fulfill those individuals who seek to live that sort of way. For truth will bear itself out over the course of centuries and millennia, and its end will be truly good and edifying. But friends, a lie will always be found out, and its end will always be destruction. So I pray, brothers and sisters, if you know those who have fallen prey to the lie of, of the sexual revolution... That, your, that the, the revolution that tells us that your identity is found in the, the sum total of your sexual impulses, if you know people who have fallen prey to that, whether they be a part of the LGBTQ movement or not, I pray that more than angry or bitter, that you would be broken for your friend, your family member, who has been victim to one of the greatest lies that Satan has ever told, to one of the greatest untruths that we have ever accepted. And my dear friend, if you're here this morning and you struggle with issues of same-sex attraction, maybe you've even been involved in same-sex relationships in the past, I want you to know this this morning. There is hope for you in the truth of God. There is a promise of an identity in Christ as a child of God that, that brings about forgiveness of your sins and a right standing between you and your Creator. A, a, a truth that far surpasses the lie that you've been told about who you are Uh, by the society, by the culture that we seem to find ourselves surrounded with. Friend, there is hope 
to know that you are created in the image of God to know, love, and to worship him in truth. This is your God-intended identity. Not that you would be, and, and not that your identity would, would be found in the sum total of your sexual impulses, but that your identity would be found in the sum total of God, all that God intended for you as a bearer of his image in creation. And friend, know this, if you find yourself in that category of people who have struggled with same-sex relationships, same-sex attraction, you, you find yourself trapped in that, in that lie or in that lifestyle, know today that there is hope, there's the promise. You may return to God's design for your life by placing your life in the merciful hands of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, who, listen, who loved you and who gave himself up to death on a cross so that your sins might be forgiven, so that you might receive a new identity as a child of God, a new identity made to walk in the truth and holiness of your creator. Now listen, I'm not going to promise that if you come to Christ, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, same-sex relationships, those sorts of things, I'm not going to promise you today that if you come to Christ, he's immediately going to wipe all of that away. If you're a brother or sister, you struggle with, with pornography, viewing pornography, let's say you're even addicted to it or addicted to sexual relationships that are not with a man or a woman that you are covenantally bound to in marriage. If you struggle with that and you come to Christ today to receive salvation for your sins, God may not take away all of those struggles immediately. We believe that he can, we pray that he will, but we know that most often in the course of, of most people's lives that he doesn't. But rather what he intends is that not, not that you continue to walk in those things, to live out those impulses, to follow those desires of your heart, but rather that he would give to you new desires, a new heart, a longing not for personal satisfaction, but, but for holiness and likeness of God, of following him in obedience. Listen, friends, if you, you struggle with sexual sin that way, and you are far from God today, you've not trusted Jesus, you're not a Christian, but you want to become one, you want your sins to be forgiven, you want real, a real identity that is beyond just what, what this body encapsulates or what this body craves, you, you want to know real life and real purpose in knowing God, loving Him, worshiping Him as you were designed, you can know that today by coming to Christ. And let me tell you, let me tell you this too, that as you do, knowing that God may not take away all of those impulses, all of those desires immediately, that he has given to you a family of brothers and sisters, other Christians in this room who want to love you. And, and, and dear Christian, you're a member of our church. We must have love and care and compassion for those who are turning from sexual sin to follow in obedience to Christ, okay? There's no room for segregation. There's no room for discrimination against those who struggle with those things. Rather, Christ has called us to love and, and to call them to holiness with compassion as we bear their, the, the burden of their desires, the burden of, of, uh, of their past sins and help them to walk in the grace of Christ. But dear brother or sister, if you're looking for redemption today from a lifestyle that you know is destroying you from the inside out, you can find redemption in Christ Jesus who died to pay the way for your salvation from sin. Brothers and sisters, Christian, you too have been saved by your faith in Christ from all sort of destructive desires by your faith in Jesus Christ. So when those who are struggling with those things that, that are a little bit taboo in our society, when they come and give their lives to Christ, let us not shoo them away, but let us welcome them in with open arms as brothers and sisters that we want to help walk in the redemption of Jesus. Thirdly, the results of, uh, or the, uh, the results of God's wrath against our rebellion found in self-deception, found in perversion of the good. Third and finally, in verses 28 through 30, Paul says that the results of God's wrath, of his refraining from intervening uh, in the midst of sin or, or intervening to stop sinners from their sinning, the third result is multifaceted immorality. We find in verses 28 through 30 this final expression of God's wrath against rebellious human beings. 
There we read that since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, because they rebelled against the clear knowledge of God in creation and worshipped other things instead, God has handed humanity over to all of the natural outworkings of that rebellion. We saw last week how in creation, God has designed human beings to reflect His holiness in the world by doing what is right and good and just. And here in Romans, we find what happens when humanity exchanges their God-given purpose for the opposite. Indeed, if God is perfectly moral then to reject the truth of God would be to prefer that which is immoral. And God says in His wrath very well, if immorality is to be your God, then you are free to pursue it with all of the consequences that it brings. And so then in these verses, we find so many of the symptoms of sin that we would call evil and wickedness, brokenness in the world today. Paul lists them for us. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolence, haughtiness or or arrogance, boasting, invention of every kind of evil, disobedience, Paul says. Friend, every single one of us can find ourselves described in those verses. Every single one of us falls under one of those categories. Very likely, every single one of us falls under multiple ones of those categories. God has handed us over to that. Why is there dishonesty in the world? Because God has handed us over to be dishonest because that's what we've chosen. Why is there murder and envy and strife in the world? Why is there war in places that that leave children orphaned and abandoned as a result of the conflict? Because God has handed handed us over to our murderous ways, to our desire for power more than, than compassion for people and for the glory of His name. Every aspect, every Every ounce of immorality of evil in the world comes as a result of God giving to us exactly what we've told him we wanted. Understanding that all these sins and the sources of suffering plague our world is not evidence against God, friends, but rather it is evidence that the world is exactly as we should expect it to be if, as the Bible demonstrates, we have really rejected God. The reason the world is the way, the world, uh, the way that it is today is because God's word is true. We have desired our, our own heart's passions, our own preferences, our own glory, our own advancement over that of God's. And he has said, very well, you may have it, and with it, all of its consequences. It's at this point that atheists often pose a false dilemma about the presence of evil and the power of God. As the argument goes, if God is good and God exists, exists then by the presence of such suffering in the world, he either lacks power to do anything about it, or he is not good and does not desire to do it, does not desire to stop evil and suffering. So either God is powerful enough to stop evil and suffering, but is not good and therefore does nothing, or God is good, but he lacks the power to do anything about evil. In either case, in this proposed false dilemma, the God that is posited is not worthy of worship or devotion. But what if, dear friends... God was precisely who Scripture says that He is. What if God is good and all-powerful? What if He is loving and just? And what if, though He is omnipotent and loving, He values the willing worship of His image-bearers over their coerced obedience? What if, rather than forcing human beings to worship Him, He allowed them the choice of worship, and with it all of the fitting consequences of that worship? Is that not precisely what we see here in Scripture this morning? that Adam and Eve had that pure and untarnished choice to make? 
worship God, obey Him, and enjoy immortality in His presence, in fruitful stewardship of the earth, and in manifold procreation, or heed the voice of the serpent, choose disobedience and rebellion to worship personal human autonomy, and to die. In their choosing the latter, God gave them and all of their progeny, all of us, gave all of us over to the consequences of that rebellion, to death, brokenness, evil, and the worst of all, separation from him. In denying the truth of God to embrace the lie of personal autonomy, Adam's sin infected the entire human race, making each of us disposed from birth to be, as Paul says, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Friends, in light of the results of God's wrath on us because of our rebellion against Him, His wrath on sinners because of their rebellion against His rightful rule in their life, I want us to come away from this. I I, I want us to come to terms with the reality that sin really is the single greatest problem facing humanity today. It's not civil wars. It's not famine. It's not an immigration crisis. It's not an opioid crisis. The greatest problem, single problem, facing the world today and facing humanity today is our sin. Because all of those other things that we'd like to foist up into the place of of greatest problem in the world, all of them are results of our initial rebellion against God. None of those things will ever stop. None of those things will ever be fixed until the problem of our rebellion is dealt with. Until the problem of, of our heart's desire for things that are not God is changed. Now all of this is surely rather depressing when we consider the global effects of sin. Right? It's, it's, it's even harder to grapple with when we consider that it's our own rebellion against God that is to blame. But let us not, friend, at this point, miss the opportunity to see a glimmer of hope in this realization as well. The very fact that human beings recognize evil, the very fact that we recognize and, and admit suffering is actually a really good sign because it demonstrates that the image of God and his intention for us to reflect his moral perfection in the world is not yet dead in us. Our sin does not completely destroy the image of God and our soul's longing for holiness and righteousness and justice in the world. Rather, it demonstrates that the image of God and his intention for us to reflect uh, his moral perfection in the world is still living. Our disgust at injustice is a reminder of God's justice. Our brokenness over suffering is a reminder of God's love for mankind. Our outrage with the evils of human trafficking, of racism in all of its forms, the tragedy of abortion, all reflect in in even sinful human beings like us the inherent worth and dignity that every human being carries as an image bearer of God. The fact that we know that things are not the way they ought to be is a good sign. It means that God is still working. It means that he's not handed us completely over to all of the things that we want, that he is still calling our hearts to return to the design that he has given to us. So where then do we find hope? Where do we find hope in such a seemingly hopeless situation? Has God, in his wrath, we may be tempted to ask, left us to our own devices and destruction forever? Is there any way out of this mess that we have made? Christian, you know the answer here, but let's be clear all the same. Absolutely there's hope. Absolutely there's hope. For God in his love of men and women whom he created in his own image to bear his likeness in the world, 
Though his wrath is poured out as he releases us to follow our sinful desires, God has not stopped extending his hand to us, inviting us to turn once again to embrace truth and to embrace what he has designed us to do and to be. Sin, friend, is damning. It deserves death. But God makes a way for our sins to be forgiven. He makes a way for us to receive a new heart, to receive new desires, and and, and to receive even everlasting life. This God has done, we know, by sending His own Son, Jesus. Truly God, to be born a human some 2,000 years ago. And this Jesus, the Son of God, the Bible tells us, lived us a life of total and perfect sinlessness. Never, ever rebelling, rebelling against God. The Bible tells us that about 30 years of age, he was put to death on a cross as a criminal for crimes he never committed. And all of this was God's good plan that the death that our sin deserves might be paid for by Jesus' own death. And the life that God intends for us would be purchased by Christ's resurrection from the dead three days later. Friends, Christ is our example for a life of obedience to God, to be sure. But more so, he's the Savior who gave his life for our foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless acts of rebellion against the truth. The Bible tells us that forgiveness of sins and a life that is restored to God the Father comes only to those who recognize their sin, who, who realize their rebellion, and who in sorrow for their rebellion turn away from uh, the lies that they have embraced to rather embrace the truth of God afresh and anew, placing all of their faith, all of their hope, all of their trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sins and raised for our justification with God. Christian, in the face of sin and evil and suffering, there is hope and a Savior for humanity. Dear friend, you who are here, and you may not be a Christian this morning, there is hope and a Savior for humanity. My friends, let us speak boldly then, as we who know this Christ, as we who know this Savior, let us then speak boldly about the life of truth and hope and healing that we have because of our risen Lord. That is our mandate. That is the call of Scripture. When we know that sin is the greatest problem and that Christ, our Savior, has died to fix our greatest problem, what greater news is there for us to tell? And if God, who's, who by his own spoken word has power to create the universe, how, how much more than does he have power to recreate, to save, to refresh, to renew, to make, to be born again the souls, the hearts of those who for so long have rebelled against him as they trust in Jesus? We're talking about having gospel conversations over the course of these three weeks. How do we talk about the problem of sin with people that we know who don't know Jesus. Maybe not even recognize the the depravity of sin uh, uh, amongst humanity. Last week I gave us a few questions to think about and to work through in our minds to ask our non-believing friends or family members to just begin to engage them in conversations that we can then take and and pivot uh, toward the gospel, to pivot toward the truth of what God's Word says. So here's some questions uh, that, that I hope will help you as you consider using them in conversation with those that you know who don't know Christ to help you to pivot conversations to the gospel. Again, remember, we're asking open-ended questions, we're listening for honest answers, and we're praying that God will give us wisdom and boldness to speak as we ought when the time comes up. So here's, here's one question to ask your lost friend or family member. If you could fix one problem facing humanity, what would it be? And why that one? 
If there's one problem amongst all the human race in the world that you could fix, which one would it be? Would it be a famine? Would it be, would it be war? Would it be uh, uh, um, those that are, are orphans or, or widows? Would you seek to, to remedy their situation? Maybe it's the issue of, of poverty. And then ask, why that one? Why is that the, the one problem in the world today that's worth addressing, that, that's worth really fixing? And, and maybe what might be the implications of fixing that one problem? As you listen to their honest answer, you pray that God would place on their hearts to ask you the same. If your lost friend or family member asks you, well, what about you? What's one problem you would fix in humanity? We know from Romans chapter 1 that the one thing that we ought to have fixed is rebellion against God because it's from that that every other problem comes. We want to get to root of the sin, not the fruit of the sin. Right? You can pick the fruit all you want. If you don't kill the root, the fruit's going to keep growing. Right? But you kill the root and the fruit dies too. So if there's one problem we as Christians could fix in the world, it would be rebellion against God. And that we know God has provided a way for through repentance of our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. I hope that gave you enough time to write that question down. Here's question number two. Is it possible that there could be one solution to all human suffering? Is it possible? And I know this is kind of a yes or no question, so you may have to prod a little bit further. But ask, ask those you know who don't know Christ, is it possible that there could be one solution to all of human suffering? And hear what they have to say to that. My guess is probably not. But even there, you have uh, an opportunity to pivot that conversation again to the gospel. And you could say, you know, it, it may seem an impossible thing to do, but, uh, but I believe God's word holds out hope that there is a solution to human suffering. And that solution is in, in people coming to know Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, turning from their sin to follow God in obedience, to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and for eternal life, to be born again. If everyone in the world were born again that way, there would be an end to human suffering. And also as a Christian, as a believer, I look forward to a day when Christ returns again, where he'll judge the world of, of righteousness and evil. And we know that he'll judge justly. And that's going to be a hard day for me because I know I've done some things that are unjust, but I know ultimately, because of his blood shed for me, I'm right with God. And so that I, I, even though I endure all of the things that I know are already true about me, I have the promise of, of eternal life with God. And as a Christian, I look forward to that, to a day and to a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more suffering. Here's a third question to ask. And I'd love to hear what sort of responses you might get from your friends. What is it that makes evil people evil? And you can start with the extreme examples, right? Hitler, Stalin, right? Uh, Saddam Hussein. Start with the worst, right? What, what is it that made those evil people evil? For Hitler, was it, was it racism? Was it ethnocentrism? Right? For Stalin, maybe the same or, 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 or faulty uh, ideologies that come along with Marxism. For Saddam Hussein, was it just that he was just uh, an arrogant sociopath? I don't know, but ask, ask people, what is it that makes evil people evil? And then ask the next question that comes after that. What makes each of us all that much more different? Which, one, which of us have not at one point or time had, 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 has had some sort of, even, even however small, reaction of, of ethnocentricity or, rea- or, or racist response to a certain situation. Our hearts are fallible. They fail all the time. Wh- who among us has never been arrogant? Right? Those things taken to their logical conclusion produce some of the greatest you know, sociopaths and, and evil people in the world. But ultimately, what's so different about us uh, uh, from them? And what makes us any less qualitatively evil than some of the most evil in the world, uh, most evil people in the world? 
Obviously, we can take that question and pivot to the gospel as well to say it's in the heart of every single man and woman to be just as evil as those. And in fact, in the sight of God, who is eternally and infinitely morally perfect, we are just as evil as they. Our rebellion against God is is no less serious, it's no less damning than the rebellion against God that Hitler, Stalin, and Saddam Hussein uh, even exercised against him. Our fate, apart from Christ, is the same as theirs. So we could ask the question, what is it that makes evil people evil? But ultimately, we know that the end, we know that the fate of all sinners is the same. All those who are outside of Christ, certainly. Fourth question to think about asking and, and using to pivot to the gospel. Ask your lost friend or family member this. Where do you look for hope in the midst of suffering? Why not just give up? With all of the problems that are in the world, with all of the economic disparity and extreme poverty in places of the world, with all of the pain and the suffering and murder and, and death and everything in all of the world, where, why do you, you still live? Why has the, the depression of this, why has it not so completely overtaken you? Where do you look for hope in the midst of suffering? What keeps you getting out of bed every day? Why haven't you just given up knowing everything is as bad as it is in some places? Dear friends, this gives us an excellent opportunity to turn that, go- the, to turn that conversation to the gospel, to say, here's my, here's my source of hope. And it's a source of hope that isn't dependent upon who's in the Oval Office or who's at the state capitol. It's a hope that, that isn't dependent upon who wins the Super Bowl or the World Series. It's a hope that isn't dependent upon economic equality or any of these other things. It's a hope that is dependent upon the God who never changes. It's a, it's a hope in the midst of suffering that promises that I, that I can have a right relationship with God who created me. And that though there be suffering in the world, I can find comfort and hope and peace in Him. And that that same hope He is also extending to all others to have as well. The reason I haven't given up is because God didn't give up on me. That by His grace, He, he showed me the truth of my sin and my need for salvation. That in His love, He called me to give my life to Jesus, the Savior who died on the cross for my sins. In His power, He saved me from my sin. And day by day, striving to walk in repentance of that. And day by day, God is making me to look more like His Son. And with each and every day, I have growing hope in the future that God has for me, not just in this life, but in the life to come. I I have growing hope in God's power to save other people and to relieve suffering in other parts of the world as people turn uh, in faith and in trust to Jesus. Friends, do you see how even talking about the worst problem facing humanity today, which is sin and our rebellion against God, how very quickly and easily it can turn to gospel conversations with those that you know and love, so long as we are respectfully, compassionately, lovingly, and boldly going there in our conversations with them. Let us pray that God would give us, would give us boldness, would give us courage to do just that. Now, friends, before I close, I want to give, uh, I want to give an invitation. I want to give a call to any one of you who are here this morning who may recognize right now, this morning, that your greatest problem in your life is not, it does not to do with, with finances or with family issues or with any of these other things, but that your greatest problem in life is your rebellion against God. That you have taken what you know is right, that you, you know is good, that you know that, that God has called you to, and you have traded it for a lie of autonomy and personal self-satisfaction. You recognize that your greatest problem is that you have turned your back on God. I want to give you an invitation this morning to turn to him in faith. God, God gives an invitation to, to all who will hear to return to a right relationship with him. 
And friend, that can be true for you today. That, that hope that we spoke about can be true in your life today. If you would turn from your own sin, in sorrow for your sin, say to God, I, I am sorry. I know that I have offended your, your character, your nature, your power. God, I have offended you, and I'm sorry for it. And I know that I need forgiveness. I know, God, because your word tells me that you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins and to be raised from the dead. And I want him to save me from my sin. So I turn away from my rebellion, God. I'm trusting Jesus with all that is in me today and every day from here on out. God, change me. Make me whole. Make me new. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new life. In a moment, we're going to sing a song uh, of response. And as we do, I'm going to be standing up here uh, at the front of the worship center. Brother, sister, dear friend, if, if, that's, if that description fits you today and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ to save you from the greatest problem facing your life today, you come talk to me about it this morning. Don't let today go by without knowing where you stand with your God and creator, the lover of your soul. Don't leave here with any question about that. Dear friend, Christian, you may have sins you need to repent of this morning. And, and the, the front steps here, the, the altar is open. You come and kneel in prayer and confession. You need to pray with me about things. You need to confess some things to me. Uh, there, I can't offer you any particular absolution, but I'm happy to pray with you uh, about those sins that are plaguing your life and asking that God will, will bring you deliverance. Whatever it is you need to do to respond to God this morning in faithfulness to what his word says, I pray that you would do so boldly today. Let's pray.